Now again, we'll hear God's word. And we turn again this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 22. We are making our way through these last chapters in this book. We're getting to know David better in different ways here at the conclusion. Among other things, we're getting to know David better as a poet who gave expression to his faith in poetry. And 2 Samuel 22 is one long, glorious poem from David's pen. It's almost identical to Psalm 18, and we've got it here as well in 2 Samuel. And last week, we trained our attention on the opening verses of this poem, verses 1 through 4. Listen to those opening verses again. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. So we focused on those verses last week. David was grateful, David was poetic. And David was gratefully poetic for the salvation that he'd received from God. God had delivered him. So gratitude, poetry, and salvation. Those were our three themes last week. Verses 1 through 4, that brings us to this week. This week we pick up at verse 5 and we keep going. And it's here especially, picking up at verse 5, it's here especially that we begin to feel the real poetic drama of this chapter. To be sure, David's already been using metaphors in the opening verses down through verse 4. The Lord is my rock, my shield, that sort of thing. So David's already been using metaphors from the outset. But, but can't you just imagine, after David begins the way he did, In those opening verses we looked at last week, after David says, in effect, the Lord delivered me, can't you just imagine saying, David, tell us about it. What happened? This deliverance that you've mentioned. What happened? What was it like? And it's at that point that David gets a faraway look in his eyes. And perhaps the lights dim and dramatic, ominous music begins to swell. For that matter, at at that point, maybe David himself reaches for his lyre. And he begins to strum the strings in a minor key. And he says, I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you what it was like. I'll tell you what it was really like as I remember it 
through the eyes of faith. So listen now to the word of God, beginning at verse 5. I'm going to read down through verse 20. David, tell us about your salvation. Verse 5. For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me. Because he delighted in me. And so does David describe what was really going on when he was delivered. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. As we thanked you before for the words of Paul, we thank you now for the words of David. And we pray that you would open our eyes to behold the wonders that are here for us. For here have you revealed your glory and grace. Open our eyes to see it, to see Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. So we've heard our passage here this morning. We've heard our poetic passage. We've been thinking lately about the goodness, the value, the power of poetry. In the world of poetry and songwriting, there are some poets and lyricists who positively resist the suggestion that you might actually analyze their words and try to interpret them. They say, no, don't even go there. Just let them be. Let my words be. Don't 
don't think so much. Not too long ago, I was watching a, a mini documentary about a particular song. It was a song by the rock band Nine Inch Nails, in case you're curious. And the little documentary was a guy interviewing the songwriter. And he was trying to understand what went into the song and what it meant. And at one point he asked him about the lyrics of the song. And the guy said, no, I don't like to reflect upon my lyrics. And you might think at that point the interview stops or he changes the subject. But no, at that point he asks a follow-up question. And you can tell it's just a roundabout way to try to get the guy to reflect upon his lyrics. And the guy smiles and says, oh, no, 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 I know what you're doing. You're trying to get me to reflect upon my lyrics. Not going there. I won't have it. The concern, the fear is that if you try to do that, if you try to analyze and interpret a poem or a song, well, at that point, you've effectively robbed the poetry of its power. So they say, no, just let it be. And and just feel. Just let yourself be moved by it. Don't think so much. And not only that, but they might also say, my words aren't even meant to be analyzed and interpreted in the first place, as if it were the case that there's one meaning in them that you're meant to discover. No, they say, you you get out of them what you want to get out of. Don't look at me. You're free to let my words lead you wherever your heart and mind want to go with them. Just let them be and let yourself be carried along with them. Don't look at me. Happily, we are not in that position when it comes to God's words, when it comes to God's poetry, God's songs. There is meaning here that we're meant to discover. There's truth here for us to learn, divine truth, rich truth. God has spoken meaningfully. God's teaching here, and we're learning from him, and it does take some analysis and interpretation so that we end up learning from him the way we're meant to. And not only that, but doing that does not rob this poetry of its power. We don't have to worry about that. I realize it does feel kind of clinical at this point to go back over a passage like the one we just heard and outline it and notice verbs and adverbs and Explain images and metaphors, but take heart. That is not to rob these words of their power. To the contrary, that is expressly for the purpose of feeling even more deeply what is here to be felt because of the meaning that's here to be grasped. Because God has spoken. Because God has said what he has said to communicate truth to us, and he has said it in this way, and calls us, even invites us, to stop and think about it, so that we do learn, so that we do feel, so we don't have to be reluctant or grudging about what we're about to do. Let's dive in and think and feel together. So here's the plan. We're going to go back over this passage. We're going to walk through it. Verses 5 down through 20, we'll notice what's here. And then when we've done that, we'll do what we usually do. We'll take a step back and reflect together on lessons to learn from it. So that's how we'll make our way. First, a walk through, and then second, lessons learned. 
So let's walk through it. Let's see what's here. And I, I will break up our passage in, into some sections to guide us as we go. Verses 5 and 6, we'll start there. Verses 5 and 6 we will call dire straits. Verses 5 and 6, dire straits. David writes, For the waves of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. This is the language of a man who felt like he was drowning. It's as if death itself had reached up to ensnare him and pull him down and pull him under. That's what it felt like. It's not uncommon in the Bible to have very bleak circumstances like this described in terms like these, in terms of water, water rising, waves overflowing. It's a potent image. I often think of Psalm 69. Psalm 69 begins, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. Psalm 69. There's just something about water and about how fearful and overwhelming it can be, especially when it rushes in on you suddenly and relentlessly. It's a potent image. It's a perfect image for when life feels just like that. Maybe because something or someone is rushing in on you suddenly, (coughs) relentlessly. And it feels like it's just a matter of time before it all washes over you completely and forever. Verses 5 and 6. Dire straits. What follows is just a one-verse section. Verse 7. This one we'll call dire plea. Verse 7, dire plea. Look at verse 7. David says, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I called from his temple. He heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. So David prayed, and God heard him. That's, that's it, short and sweet. David prayed, and God heard him. Where it says there in verse 7, From his temple he heard my voice. It's not entirely clear if that means the earthly temple in Jerusalem, in which case the idea is that David was there at the temple when he was praying or or oriented toward it in some way. That could be. Or if that's a way of referring to heaven itself as God's temple, God's dwelling place, where he, he dwells on high and hears the dire pleas of his people. It's not entirely clear. There's such a wonderful interplay between those two realities. The temple in Jerusalem was meant to be an earthly reflection of God's heavenly presence, that really each one of them pointed to the other. It could even be that the reference here to the temple is deliberately ambiguous, the way poetry sometimes is. So that you will think of them both, earth and heaven. That could be. But the main idea is clear enough. David prayed, 
And the God who hears prayer heard him, heard his dire plea. So dire straits, next dire plea, and now a third section we'll call God Responds, beginning at verse 8. God responds all the way down through verse 16. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundation of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. And it goes on from there. David goes on from there to describe God riding in and what it was like. The image there in those verses, 8 down through 16, is awful. I mean, in the most wonderful, glorious way. It's awful. What, what David describes in verses 8 down through 16. If it helps, spell it in your mind. A-W-E hyphen F-U-L-L. It's awful. The image is God riding in, burning with anger. Riding in to save and destroy, to save his own, to destroy his enemies. And it's all so fearful and mighty and angry and loud and bright and hot that the earth itself reels and rocks and shakes and quakes to the point that the foundations of the earth are revealed. The foundations of the heavens as well. If you can imagine the whole of creation being laid bare when the creator rides forth. There is some anthropomorphism going on in those verses 8 down through 16. And remember what that means, anthropomorphism, is talking about God in human terms as a way of helping us to understand what's being communicated about him. And there is some of that here in these verses, the, the very idea of God riding in like a warrior and references to his feet and his mouth, and his nostrils, that sort of thing. There's some of that here, anthropomorphic language. And yet at the same time, there is something fantastic, almost dreamlike, about the way this whole scene is described. It is certainly not anthropomorphic to talk about devouring fire emanating from somebody's mouth. That is not drawing upon human experience. So God rides in awful and mighty and angry. And he rides in in order to save and destroy. It's something that you can sort of picture with the help of the the poem. And at the same time, you can't really picture it. Precisely because it is something so magnificent. And unprecedented and unlike anything we experience. God responds. That's verses 8 down through 16. And then one last section here, a fourth section. We've noticed dire straits, dire plea. God responds. Here's one more section, verses 17 down through 20. And we'll call it God saves. God saves 
Look at verse 17. He that is God sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. I was saying before that the beginning of our passage, it was the language of a man who felt like he was drowning like death itself had reached up to pull him under. Well, here at the end, it's God himself reaching down to pull him up. To pull him up out of those waters. And to set him down safely on dry land, a broad place. And of course, God is stronger than the waters. God is mightier than death. When death pulls down and God pulls up, God wins. God saves. So there's a little four-point outline of our passage here. Dire straits, dire plea, God responds, God saves. And the idea in all of this is that this is David's way. This is David's poetic imaginative, metaphorical, fantastic, almost dreamlike way of saying, this is what it was like when God delivered me from my enemies and gave me victory over them. So this isn't prose. This isn't just the facts. This isn't bare history. This is soaring poetry. So whatever the earthly circumstances were, When God delivered David. Whatever it might have looked like to the natural eye. And as we've seen, God delivered him in a wide variety of circumstances. Whether it was a a sweeping victory for a mighty army. Or a well-placed spear thrust by one soldier. Whether it was a well-timed word from a wise counselor. Or a surprisingly timed turn of events that turned an enemy away just in time. Whatever it was, whatever it looked like here on earth, this is David's way of helping us to understand what was really going on. This is David, in a poetic way, peeling back the curtain to give us a glimpse. What was really happening, and it takes the eyes of faith to see it, was God riding in. And burning with anger. Determined to save. Reaching down and pulling David up out of those waters. Just in time. Just before death pulled him down for good. Peel back the curtain. And that's what you see. With the eyes of faith. So that's what we've got here. That's, that's our, our walk through. Verses 5 through 20. Now, brothers and sisters, what do we learn from this? What what can we take from these verses? And there, there are two points especially that I want to drive home here. The first of them we'll call bad news first. 
Bad news first. This is a lesson that we can learn from the way that David begins. Remember, how does he begin? Dire straits, waves and torrents and cords and snares. David admits it. Mine was a lost cause. If it weren't for God's sovereign saving mercy. That's where he starts. He, he candidly admits what he was up against. And it's not just at the outset in verses 5 and 6. It's also something he says almost by the way in verse 18. Look down at verse 18. He says, God rescued me from my strong enemy for those who, from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They were too mighty for me. David admits it. Mine was a lost cause. My enemies were too much for me. That's how bad it was. It sounds like another psalm of David. Psalm 124. Psalm 124, where David says, again, candid admission. He says, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive. When their anger was kindled against us, when the flood would have swept us away, the torrent would have gone over us, then over us would have gone the raging waters. That's Psalm 124, and you notice it's more water. Something about water. So back to our passage here this morning, back to 2 Samuel 22. David admits it in earthly terms, with respect to earthly fortunes, he was doomed. Left to himself until God stepped in. And and there's a lesson here in all of this. There's a reminder here for us today. It's an important point when it comes to our grasp of the gospel of God's saving grace. We'll only appreciate just how good the good news of salvation is when we come to grips with just how bad the bad news of sin was. That we needed to be rescued from in the first place. That's on display here in this poem. We'll only appreciate just how good the good news is. When we come to grips with just how bad the bad news was. I remember when I was in seminary. And we were studying the book of Ruth. In one of our Old Testament classes. One of our Hebrew translation classes. And the professor who taught the class, was Australian. Well, pretty early on in that book, the book of Ruth, you talk about dire straits. There's famine back home so that this family is forced to flee, and now the husband and the two sons have both died, and so now you've got these three women who are all alone. That's bordering on a death sentence right there. And our professor said... We have an expression for that back in Australia. I'll spare you my accent. He said, whenever somebody's in dire straits like that and it looks like they're finished, what we say about them is they're cactus. They're cactus. To this day, I cannot read the book of Ruth without hearing that expression. In that accent. I can't even hear the name Ruth without an Australian accent. Ruth and Naomi. 
They were cactus. And then God saved them. And and you, you appreciate where they end up. And the abundant favor of God. Because you've made your way through the story, through the bad news first, of where those women found themselves. And that's, that's a good picture of this truth we're talking about here. We'll only appreciate just how good the good news is, where we end up when we come to grips with just how bad the bad news was in the first place. That principle is reflected in several of Paul's letters in the New Testament. That's why I read Romans 3 for us earlier in our service today. Romans 3. Paul driving home the reign of sin, its guilt, its power. And and he draws upon all of these Old Testament verses to, to make the case. He says, as it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, and he keeps going. Old Testament citation, one after the other. Finally, he says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Cactus. And then happily, very happily, it's at that point that Paul says, But now, but now a saving righteousness has been revealed. And and the reason you glory all, all the more in those sweet words, but now, is that Paul has just covered the ground that he did driving on the realities of sin and judgment. Bad news first. Ephesians. Ephesians is like that too. Ephesians chapter 2. That chapter begins, you were dead. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then Paul keeps going. He keeps driving it home. Finally, he says, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Cactus. As they say down under. But then happily, very happily, it's at that point that Paul says, but God. But God made us alive. And again, it's the same idea. The reason you glory all the more in those sweet words, but God, is that Paul just covered the ground that he did, driving home the realities of sin and judgment. Bad news first. Think about it in the life of our church. Whenever somebody gets up here, on this stage to make a profession of their faith in Christ. I I love the questions they have to answer about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit and about the church. Those are great, but those are not the first question. Here's the first question. Bad news first. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure and without hope, save in His sovereign mercy? Cactus. I suppose it's a different kind of love, but I, I, I love that question too. I love hearing somebody say, I do to it, because that's gospel humility. And humility is beautiful. That's step one. That's where it begins to say, I was under the wrath of God. And there was nothing I could do to atone for my own sins. To say, my heart was turned away from God, and there was nothing I could do to turn it back toward Him. So that I loved Him, so that I loved His Word. To say, in short, I was dead. 
but God made me alive. Bad news first. Brothers and sisters, the point in all of this is that it's good to be reminded now and then, and then to carry it around with us, at least in the backs of our minds, all the time, that apart from God's grace, we were lost. We were cactus. Not just needing a little help, a nudge. Not even just needing a lot of help. Instead, needing comprehensive, sovereign, divine mercy to reach down and raise us up just in time. And he did brought us to spiritual life within so that we came to faith, regeneration within leading to faith. And then by that faith, we were justified, children of wrath no more. So let us magnify his grace today because we've stopped and thought about all that that grace saves us from. May it be so. So that's our first today. Bad news first. Here's a a second and final point to, to think about. We'll call this one, When God Saves. What's it like when God saves? Well, David helps us to see it. As David reflects upon his own earthly deliverances from Saul and other enemies within and without. David helps us to appreciate what it's like when God saves. When God saves, we can say it's fearful because God puts his own brilliant glory on display and he roars. So it's fearful We can say that when God saves, it's angry. He's angry. Because it's God looking down on one of his beloved ones, lost and tyrannized. And he burns. We can say when God saves, it's mighty. Because he rides in to tear down and destroy and also to lift up and save. We can say when God saves, it's merciful because he rides in to rescue sinners who have no claim whatsoever on his favor. And one more, we can say when God saves, it's intimate because he does not save at a distance. No, he rides in and he does it himself. Fearful, angry, mighty, merciful, intimate. And the point is, all of those things are true of the salvation that's ours now in Jesus Christ. Saved from sin and Satan and hell itself. When God saves in Christ, it's like that. Fearful and angry and mighty and merciful and intimate. And like everything else in God's word, it takes faith to see it. You've got to walk by faith and not by sight. And I say that... Because when you stop and think about how God has acted in human history in such a way as to save sinners, from a merely natural vantage point, it doesn't look a whole lot like 2 Samuel 22. 
It doesn't look and feel like the earth reeling and rocking and devouring fire emanating from the very mouth of God and thunder and arrows and lightning and all of it. No, what it looks like, and stop me if you've heard this story, actually don't. What it looks like is this. There once was a man who was engaged to be married. And some people must have assumed they were already married because she was pregnant. And they went on this trip to his ancestral town, and they went there because he had to be registered in a census. And while they were there, it was time she gave birth to a son, and circumstances were not exactly ideal. So they had to put the baby down in an animal animal feeding trough to sleep. Not exactly divine thunder and arrows and lightning and fire and reeling and rocking seems pretty tame. Seems kind of boring. I mean, from a merely natural vantage point. So look again. Look again with the eyes of faith at that apparently tame, ordinary scene. Look and listen with the eyes of here, the with the eyes and ears of faith, and you will tremble. Because you will see and hear the fearful roar of God and His burning anger and His awful might and His staggering mercy. And then the same thing was true of so much that followed. The life that Jesus lived, even the death that he died, there was so much about it that wouldn't have made anybody say, well, here's God riding in to rescue. All so ordinary. And then in the end, also apparently disgraceful. But we know better. We look back over the life of Jesus from the beginning to the end. And we hear the divine roar. And we behold the drama of the divine rescue mission. And then we can keep going. It's not just looking back in history to what God did in Jesus to accomplish our salvation. It's also what God has done in our very own lives in order to bring us to that Savior so that we actually believe in Him to be saved. Might not look all that dramatic. What's happened in your very own life to make you a Christian? And to cause you to grow as a Christian might not look all that arresting. But then look again with faith and listen for the roar. And behold the divine warrior riding in to your rescue. I take this personally. I remember the night I came to faith. I remember that late-night conversation with a fellow first-year student at UVA telling me about Jesus. From a merely natural vantage point, trust me, there was nothing to see. It was the kind of thing that was probably going on that very hour all over the place, all over the grounds at UVA. Just two fellow students, up late at night, probably too late, talking about this or that or whatever. And then after a while, another student joins those two, and so now it's the three of them sitting on the steps outside the dorm, talking about this or that or whatever. And then at some point, it looks like the three of them bow their heads. If somebody walked past us, 
And somebody probably did. No doubt they kept going. I would have. Nothing to see here. Just a tame, boring, ordinary, quiet scene. But I tell you, I look back now on that scene with the eyes of faith. And I listen with the ears of faith. And I hear God roaring. And I see God riding in. With fantastic light and darkness. And I see him riding in, burning with anger. Because one of his elect ones remains shackled and blind. And I see him riding in and saying, enough of this. And I see him reaching down. And lifting me out of the waters. Setting me in a broad place. It would not have registered on any seismograph. But make no mistake, there was an earthquake in Charlottesville that night. The earth reeled and rocked. And the heavens did too. Because the divine warrior rode in. And rescued. And then I, you know, I think about Christy and, and our kids. And so many of you right here in this room right now. Perhaps tuning in online. If anything, your personal stories seem tamer and quieter than mine. For a lot of you, your personal story goes something like this. I was brought up in the church, I was brought up to know Christ, and I cannot remember a time when I didn't trust in Him. I can't name a date or recall a conversation when I was suddenly converted. If that's your story, and by the way, thank God for it. If that's your story, no matter how tame and quiet that might sound on the surface... Well, if you're a believer in Jesus today, make no mistake, God rode in. In your life, God roared. And he rode in. And he burned. And the earth quaked. And he reached down. And he rescued you. Just in time. Every Christian ought to have that sense about his or her own life. I am what I am today because the divine warrior rode in for me and roared and reached down and rescued me before the waters carried me away for good. So all of us who find ourselves in Christ today by faith, let us rejoice today that for us and for our salvation... God rode in. I said it before, again I say, let us magnify his grace today.
Let's pray together. Our great God, we bow before you and we tremble. We tremble at the thought of sin. Driven to our knees by by the memory, by the truth of just how lost, lost sinners are. Just how lost we were and would be were it not for your grace. Bad news first. And then we keep going. We keep running. To your grace, the good news that follows the bad. In Christ, you roared and rode into our rescue. By the Spirit, you roared and rode in and reached down and raised us up and set us in a broad place. So we bless your name this day, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.